as I'm flying there, as I'm on the plane going to investigate this event of a person being struck by the top of a tree, I'm reading Todd Conklin's book on workplace fatalities. And he has a couple of things that he says in this book that were aha moments for me. The thing... The things that he said are the things that kill workers seem to be the things that are most difficult to control. Risk is in the eye of the beholder, and risk may be defined as the degree to which a worker is facing uncertainty. So again, tying it back to to Dave Woods, right? Uncertainty is a signal. So I get to the place and am able to begin interviewing these workers. And what showed up for us was that when we talk about uncertainty or control, that is the perfect way to frame risk. The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello with Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigean Technologies. We are excited today to welcome Beth Lay. Beth's expertise is in applying resilience engineering, high reliability organizations, and safety too to human performance. She is currently guiding the transformation from traditional behavior-based safety to new view safety too, as the Director of Safety and Human Performance for Lewis Tree. Beth has advised on resilience and human performance for NASA, the Department of Energy, and Los Alamos National Labs. She is a mechanical engineer with a master's certificate in cognitive science. Former roles include leading Siemens Energy Risk Management Team, and more recently, Director of Human Performance at Calpine. Welcome, Beth. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me today. So I wanted to kind of go back to the beginning. I know you did not start your career as part of the resilience engineering movement. So will you tell us a little bit about how you got started and how you found your way to resilience? Well, Laura, I'm really glad that you asked that question because this is one of my favorite stories. Uh, So I was working at Siemens and we were just beginning our human performance journey. Uh, We'd formed a human performance committee and we were reading all these books by James Reason, which is where probably everyone starts. And And I started thinking, wow, wouldn't it be interesting if we could actually have a conversation with James Reason? So I was able to figure out what city he lived in by looking at the cover of one of his books. And uh, through doing a little bit of research on the Internet, I was able to actually find this email address. And it was kind of obscure. It was something like jreason at (laughs) redstone.com. And it was really hard to find. So I sent a cold call email. And the email just said something like, are you James Reason uh, that works with human performance? If so, I have a question for you. So weeks went by, didn't hear from him. And then I'm sitting, we're actually sitting in a human performance council meeting and I get an email and it's from James Reason. And he says, dear Beth, you found me. What's your question? (laughs) I know. 
<laughs> so um, we had a little bit of correspondence at that point in time. I was in Florida. He was living in Manchester, England. It was winter time. It was really cold there. So we thought well, this might be a great opportunity to entice him to come visit with us. And sure enough, it worked. He came over, he and John Rethaw, and we actually ended up having a great several-day meeting in St. Pete, Florida. We spent time on a sailboat. And toward the end of that visit, he said, hey, you know, you really ought to check into this resilience engineering thing. I think I think it's important. And there you go. <laughs> that was the beginning. Wow, that is the best story of contacting a thought leader out of the blue that I've ever heard. That's awesome. <laughs> so I imagine that some people are surprised that Lewis Tree is interested in resilience engineering. So tell us a little bit about Lewis Tree and, and your role there. Okay. And I, you know what, I would bet that some people at Lewis Tree are surprised that we're interested in resilience engineering still. Uh, uh, it's one of those things that you just begin to implement without necessarily saying what it is uh, for a while, although we're talking about it now. So I'm the director of safety and human performance at Lewis Tree. I've been there three years. In fact, my three-year anniversary is next week. And I've been leading the transition from um, behavior-based safety to new view safety. And the line clearance industry is pretty heavily into behavior-based safety. And they have been for a lot of years. It's a fairly insular industry. So I'm very lucky to be at Lewis Tree. They were looking for, uh, for something different, and they found that in me. And so the version of New View Safety that we're implementing is actually founded in resilience engineering theories. It's a little bit different maybe than, than other versions of it. So Lewis Tree in general... We perform line clearance, and that is at its most simple, clearing trees away from power lines, but we also do storm response, and that is removing trees off of downed power lines. And as you can imagine, right now we're poised all around the edges of the damage from Hurricane Ida, and in fact, our teams are beginning to engage in that area as we speak. Sure, that makes sense. So I, I, I think um, my guess is much of the NDM community doesn't know the term behavior-based safety. Um, I wondered if you just talk a little bit about that. Um, behavior-based safety is highly focused on controlling um, the behavior of the frontline worker. So if only the frontline worker would follow the rules, then everything would be fine. So it's a lot around observing um, maybe the, the behavior, so to speak, of the worker uh, violating or working, um, focusing a lot on getting them not to violate. So it's very sharp and focused. I'm sure that's not a very complete <laughs> definition of it, <laughs> though. Yeah, no, I think, I think that will really resonate with people. Yeah, yeah. And, and so um, I guess the other thing maybe to mention is that um, Lewis Tree, I mean, the work these folks do really is pretty um, high stakes. Like, like this is, this is dangerous work. Um, people are in a hurry because they need their power back, but you're working around power lines. Yeah, it's, it is very high stakes work. And um, it turns out that the work that we do is among the most dangerous work in, in the United States, maybe the world, because as you can imagine, you're um, either in a bucket of a bucket truck or you're actually climbing 
the tree and you're working with a chainsaw near, near a power line for the most part. So dangerous tools close to a, a live power line often. Right. So this is a classic example of one of those domains where on paper, it looks like if you just follow the rules, everything will go fine. But we know in reality, there are all kinds of variables you cannot anticipate. Absolutely. And I think that's been one of our uh, one of our early aha moments was you know, we, all, we, all, we work with um, Asher Bakken, who's a safety researcher from OSU, and he joined us oh, probably three months into our journey. And he made the observation early on. He said, the, this business is among the most variable business of any business or any um, domain, I should say, I've ever worked with. And he said, it's second only to the special forces. And so that was very eye-opening for us because I, I don't think we'd ever viewed the work that way before. And shifting to view our work as highly variable um, really changed everything. And it's fundamental to, uh, to how we've been approaching work. Yeah, very interesting. Because yeah, on the surface, tree trimming sounds pretty straightforward. But, uh, but there are, yeah, there's really a lot of complexity to it. As they say, Laura, every tree is different. And I can't tell you how many times I heard that when I came on board, which really made it kind of hard to get our arms around risk. And I remember uh, in some of the early conversations, you know, I would say, tell me, um, what do we do that's most risky? What's highest risk? Because I was trying to target that. I could never get there because they would always say everything we do is high risk. So that variability um, of every tree being different uh, was was tricky to work with, but I think we've kind of had some breakthroughs recently with respect to that. Sure. Yeah. And then you throw in weather Mm -hmm. uh, and terrain and uh, structures around the trees and yeah. So you've, uh, you mentioned some of, Laura mentions a few other domains, NASA and and Siemens before. So I'm wondering if you could talk about some of those other high stakes domains. And in particular, if you could focus on thinking about kind of the most fulfilling project you've worked on. Okay, well, maybe uh, maybe I can tell you about a recent project that we just wrapped up. It was a I, w- I don't know if I'd say it was the most fulfilling, but it was definitely an interesting project because most fulfilling would probably be the work that I'm doing at Lewis Tree, honestly, because mm-hmm. we're it, we're actually affecting results, and that's exciting. Uh, but I just completed a, a an interesting project with NASA. Um, it was a it was a quick project, but they. Um, they are going out for bid for a, a spacesuit system um, for deep space and also for uh, working on the moon. And the project was related to looking at their, um, their request for proposal to see where there were opportunities to add language that would incorporate resilience or resilience engineering, and then also some criteria as they review the proposals um, from the commercial vendors of looking for what would indicate um, resilience. So that was the project. We, and so we, we, we led a couple of workshops with the team that drafted the proposal or request for proposal and is evaluating the proposals that come in. So what do you remember what sort of language got changed? Or added? Well, I think they're still working on what they're changing or adding, but some opportunities that showed up for us were language around the 
the need for a high level of collaboration versus throwing things over a fence. And I believe Asher actually used the word create porous boundaries between the commercial organization and NASA as they go through the process. And then another opportunity that showed up for us was there's a lot of language around identifying all anomalies and closing all issues before you proceed with a mission. And we brought forth that that could be a concern because, you know, as you think about resilience engineering, you're really thinking about, you want to, you want to learn about weak signals. So we brought up that maybe they could use language to lower that threshold on what would be considered an anomaly um, such that you would start to hear about things earlier um, before they actually made it to anomaly threshold. And you may not want everything to be closed because you don't want things to be closed prematurely. So a lot of it was around how to open up that communication to notice when things might be taking a turn for the worse earlier or notice when uncertainty exists before it's reached a threshold that people are sure it's a problem. Yeah, this is a really interesting application because you're you're in an, uh, a spot where you're trying to encourage the respondents to stress that they're looking out for these things or that they have that as part of the process. Um, so, so yeah, I, I guess it'd be interesting to do a sort of before and after on the uh, on the language, and and it sounds like. You almost shifted away from uh, tell us that your product is going to be right to tell us that your process is going to account for these things. Is that fair? That's very fair. That's actually well put. Exactly. So open up the lines of communication and lower the threshold for what you talk about. Yeah. Nice. I like that term porous boundaries too. That's. I thought that was a great descriptor of it as well. Yeah. So Beth, I know you're one of the thought leaders in the resilience engineering community. And I think um, one of the things you bring to the table is that you balance out some of the more theoretical and academic elements with your really pragmatic application of REA principles. And I wondered if you would share with us um, one or two insights from your experiences um, working with practitioners, not resilience engineering people, but, you know, tree trimmers or energy folks. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Okay, I can share one with you that um, it, it's actually a pretty, we're, it's evolving. <laughs> I guess I'll put it that way, but I'm very, very excited about it. So let's go back to uh, Dave Woods. So one of the things that Dave Woods says is see uncertainty as a signal. So notice when you're feeling uncertain, and then that's a signal that you, you know, that that trouble might be coming or that you're approaching a safety boundary. So we've taken that idea and we've actually built a tool around it. So um, I'll tell you the story of how we got there. Um, so it was, it, it's really kind of an interesting story. So with line, with line clearance, the way that you're most likely to be seriously hurt or killed is being struck by a limb or struck by a tree as you're felling it. By far, that is the most... Um, that's the most the, the most dangerous risk for us. And so we'd, we'd had an incident where um, a, a man was uh, struck by a limb. Uh, it, he, he, was, he was hit and he was injured. It wasn't 
um, it wasn't a severe injury, but it was a close call for a severe injury. So we we investigated. We uh, you know did a typical typical human performance look at what happened. We noticed that the crew had been using a thumbs up method to verify whether or not it was enter the okay to enter the drop zone. We noticed that the crewman was new to the crew, um, so we brought in the team situation awareness stuff, and we thought okay we. We figured some stuff out here about that risk, and we communicated broadly on it. We built up our skills on managing team situation awareness. Two months later, we had another event, and that event really shook us up because um, we talk about being relentless in our pursuit of elimination of serious injuries, and two months later, we had another really serious event of a person being struck by the top of a a huge pine tree. And so I had had to ask myself, you know, what does being relentless in the pursuit of this look like, look like? And I had to realize that, that I needed to go. So basically I got on, I got on a plane and headed to, um, to where that event had happened, where the second event had happened. And it actually wasn't too far from where the first event happened. And we, as I'm flying there, as I'm on the plane going to investigate this event of a, of a person being struck by the top of a tree, I'm reading Todd Conklin's book on workplace fatalities. And he has a couple of things that he says in this book that were aha moments for me. The, thi- the things that he said are the things that kill workers seem to be the things that are most difficult to control. Risk is in the eye of the beholder, and risk may be defined as the degree to which a worker is facing uncertainty. So again, tying it back to to Dave Woods, right? Uncertainty is a signal. So I get to the place and am able to begin interviewing these workers. And what showed up for us was that when we talk about uncertainty or control, that is the perfect way to frame risk for felling a tree or trimming a tree. And so we actually came up with this tool called an uncertainty gauge. And on one end of the tool, I mean, it's like, it's, it's a simple, simple tool, but danger red on, on the red side means that you're highly uncertain about this, the way the tree or limb is going to come down. You might have dead wood overhead that you can't reach. So you really don't have the ability to control it very well which would make it high on the uncertainty gauge. And on the other end of the gauge, you can control pretty well how it's going to come down. You can predict pretty well how you're going to be able to fell or or drop the limb. So reframing risk in terms of uncertainty has opened up all of these doors for us and ones that I hadn't even imagined would open. In fact, we um, we covered the uncertainty gauge again on our uh, safety call this past Monday and two of the safety specialists created a drill and learning about it. And they're taking it places that I am so excited about because basically what it's done, it's, it's enabled us to be able to look at uncertainty, not as fixed, but as dynamic. And so now we have this really dynamic view of risk with everyday work. And they even said, hey, this, this gauge is not about giving it a number. 
what it's about is opening a conversation. So one person says, hey, I think it's a seven. Another says it's a three. And the point of it is to begin to explore. Why do you think it's a seven? Why do you think it's a three? How would you approach this work? So it opens this really powerful conversation to explore um, how well they can actually do that work in a controlled way or not. So I know that's kind of a lot, but I'm pretty excited about this this uh, particular tool that we came up with. Yeah, no. So this is a really cool example of how um, you know we can talk about uncertainty as a signal, and people can nod along, but then kind of operationalizing it, creating this gauge that gives people a language and a, a place to kind of talk about how they're assessing risk and and create the conversation, as you say. So this is what I think is really cool about your work is kind of taking these things we write about and talk about and read about and and bringing them into the world of work in really meaningful ways. That's a great example. Thank you. Have you had any pushback? Because, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, has anyone said, yeah, have you had any pushback about this at all? So I have had pushback on other things. <laughs> Uh, and usually the pushback takes the form of um, the language may be too academic um, or the, too much. There's too much too soon. But on this particular tool and the, and the thinking around this, no pushback. And I think that's one of the coolest things about it because it seemed to fit very naturally into the conversations that were already occurring. And for example, on the trip that I just described to you, um, we walked up to a crew and they were, they were uh, preparing to fell a pine tree that was about, I'm going to say, 90 feet tall and had uh, been struck by lightning. And they're standing there and they're looking at the tree and they're thinking about how they're going to bring that tree down. So we entered into a conversation with them and we actually had a, um, one of our trainers join the conversation as well. And he's using language like, how comfortable are you with this? How comfortable are you with the plan? Um, so that part brings out a couple of things that are really important. One is how this concept already fits naturally into the language we're using. How comfortable are you? But then the second part is that back to Todd's um, back to Todd's uh, saying risk is in the eye of the beholder. We say risk is in the eye of the saw, saw holder because yeah. the risk really depends on the skill and knowledge of the person who's getting ready to do the work. And that's what I love about this because it ties in that human part, um, that variability of the, the the plan and skill of the person who's actually going to do the work. Yeah. So this, this really resonates with me too. I mean, I've worked in lots of domains. Very recently, I've been working with helicopter pilots, army helicopter pilots. And, you know, I interviewed one and he said, I knew I could land in this small space. I knew the pilot currently flying maybe couldn't. So I just took over the controls. So um, it would have been a very risky thing for someone else, but based on his knowledge and skill, he knew he could do it. Um, and, and, and so anyway, I think, I mean, I think that is part of expertise is kind of knowing what your um, skills are and where the limits are, right? 
Yes, exactly. And that's that's a big part of that risk assessment. So let me let me ask. I have this image of of um, these uh, tree service folks working, you know, all night after a storm, like long hours, lots of time pressure. Um, people need their power. Um, what are your thoughts about having these conversations in that kind of situation? Well, I think it's actually the perfect time to have those conversations. And today, that's the tool we're focusing on. You know, as I mentioned, today is the day many many of our um, workers are engaging in the area right where uh, Hurricane Ida landed. And so this is this is the tool that's going to to um, to guide the conversations. And so, you know, uh, there. So the, there's obviously more to this than just that that question about how uncertain are you. Um, the the other parts that go to it that fit really well with what we're doing with the storm response are if you're feeling uncertain, then it's time to uh, to step it up and to involve another leader. And I I think that's key is what you do after you notice that you have a certain level of uncertainty. And with respect to storm response, uncertainty will show up in a variety of ways. And one that's most important for us is whether or not the lines are uh, properly grounded. Um, And so this is an area where we're we're saying if you're not 100% certain and you can't, you know, if you can't see those grounds and make sure the line is dead and grounded, then we don't go to work. It, it's too risky. Um, but other areas where it really shows up for us in terms of storm response are, if you can imagine, you have a large tree, it's fallen on a power line, and the power line's got a lot of tension on it. Think of it as like a, a slingshot or a catapult. Mm-hmm. And as we begin to uh, remove mass from that tree, then it it becomes less predictable what's going to happen. Like uh, at what point does a line have enough tension in it that it will shoot a six to eight foot huge log into the air? I mean, that's, that's the risk. And so I think the, the uncertainty gauge is going to open up some really interesting conversations for us around that. We're also planning to build a, a specific job-specific pre-task brief for that work. And that's an area, Laura, that I'm really excited to work with your team on, is how we build those those really great decision tools um, before we do that high-risk work. Yeah. So it's not just about having the tool. It's also about kind of setting the, the tone or the culture for this work. Like, this is when it gets intense in a storm, and, and this is when this is most important. Yes, very well put. Very well put. And it's it's also lowering the tolerance level um, uh, for uncertainty. Like if, if uncertainty is high, we're working, we, we, we have been working with our teams to notice that you're feeling it, including certain postures, uh, hand on chin. Um, there's certain postures that people take when they're trying to, to figure things out. So how to recognize it in yourself how to recognize it in others, how to recognize it in the conversation. We call it risk flags and language and then act on it. And if it is at a certain level, um, we're working a lot with our leadership to, to step in, right. 
and, and the role of the leader has changed from stepping in and telling people what to do to stepping in and helping challenge the plan, stepping in and having options ready, other options, uh, ways to do the work, bringing in a different piece of equipment, bringing in different people. So that ties exactly back to resilience engineering because, you know, uh, um, Ashby's law of requisite variety right? Um, the need to build recipro- reciprocity uh, among teams, um, speak, you know, bringing in the voice, diverse, diverse voices. So we're building those practices in of what to do, how to, be- how to make better sense going to the HRO community, um, better sense making after we notice we're in a, a, a very uncertain situation. And we're finding that more and more teams do do that. We, we actually get a lot of close calls reported, and the close call follows that pattern. We had this situation. Uh, brought, we, we came together. We called our general foreman. We worked together. We came up with another plan to do the work that was safer, or we waited until the wind died down. And that's a pattern that we're noticing more and more with our work which taking it back to resilience engineering, you know, resilience engineering is a lot about paying attention to when you're ap- approaching those safety boundaries and then moving into a different mode of operation. Nice. Gosh. So this is a place where you are really getting good traction and making a difference. I'm wondering if you think back over your career, are there some barriers that have been more difficult to overcome than you expected? Maybe where you weren't able to get the kind of traction or make the difference you'd hoped to? Well, <laughs> that was one question that I hoped you wouldn't ask, but I do have an answer for it. <laughs> and um, so, yes, there were, as I believe there are for all of us, there are those situations. And one of the ones that, that comes to mind is uh, when I was at Siemens, and I had a manager there who I loved very much. He was one of the best people that I've ever worked for. And he used to tease me about being on the lunatic fringe, which I took as a compliment. And I think he meant it as a compliment. But the barrier that would be difficult to overcome was, I think, being too different, um, maybe too different in my views on safety um, and, and maybe other ways as well. Uh, you know, ultimately that I think that being too different resulted in me leaving uh, two jobs. And, and that was hard. Um, That was really, really hard. And I, and I think that the, the barrier that uh, was there was that sometimes people are really deeply entrenched in thinking and values of traditional safety. And much of new New view safety um, is not aligned with some, the traditional values. Not everything, because some of them are absolutely valid. But we also know that safety science has shown some of the uh, some of the ideas of traditional safety to be inaccurate. And we also know as well that some of the practices with traditional safety don't help us so much when we're really focused on reducing serious injuries and fatalities. Yeah, Beth, I'm wondering, actually, if you could provide a tangible example. So uh, an example where what you were offering um, was uh, counter to either what was 
currently in the organization or someone's perspective or traditional safety? Do you have any specific examples? It's kind of tough to come up with specific examples because it's really more um, behavior-based safety uh, as compared to new view safety. But maybe a specific example would be key performance indicators. Companies are still often judged. Uh, their safety performance is also often judged or even assessed whether they're able to, able to work on a system based on their OSHA incident rates. And studies have shown that OSHA incident rates are not a good predictor or even really associated with whether or not that company is likely to have uh, serious incidents. And it almost can be a distractor. So one example of that would be, what are you going to use for your key performance indicators? Are you going to use something that is um, proactive or are you going to use something that is uh, reactive and actually uh, some studies have shown that TRIR is almost entirely random. Right. So so that sort of thing really cuts across domains. Yes. So you've already mentioned a couple people uh, who have influenced your approach. I wonder if you have anybody else in mind uh, over the years who's who you look back on and say that their work was really influential in the way that you think about safety. Well, Asher Bakken, uh, I think I did mention him earlier, but it's worth mentioning him again because he as he is a safety researcher uh, from Ohio State University, and from the beginning, he has pretty much been a part of our safety team here, and he's been highly influential in guiding us, uh, but even more than that, in bringing forth these perspectives and helping us notice things that have been really important as we've gone on this journey. Uh, Dave Woods, of course, <laughs> you know, I've met Dave Woods in the early years of Resilience Engineering Association. I think I went to the second symposium. So over the years, Dave's thinking and writing has been tremendously influential. And I'm going to go to someone more recent, who's my current boss, Tom Rogers, who's the CEO of our company at Lewis Tree. And his wisdom and thinking has really helped a lot in how we actually can implement the ideas and tools at a company, like how you actually change a company, a culture, and his support in doing that has been absolutely um, essential. So two theorists and a, and a practical person. Yes, two right. theorists and a practical person. So Beth, um, I, we, we talked about some of the work you're doing right now. I'm wondering, where are you planning to take your work next? Where we're planning to go next uh, within the coming year is I want to further explore naturalistic decision-making. Um, and specifically, what I want to explore is how we can support new workers in building decision-making skills around critical work. Um, for, for example, um, the line clearance industry has a high turnover rate. Usually within the first two years, you lose about 70% of the workers. So we need to find a way to get those new workers up to speed really quickly. And what I want to learn, hopefully working uh, with, with Laura, is how we can build tools and training to help our workers learn those decision-making skills about, for example, uh, when they're working really close to the power lines, 
um, how to approach those difficult or tricky situations. Yeah. So you're mentioning decision skills. I'm wondering, does that sort of thing exist within the resiliency literature? So um, you say you're re- kind of reaching out to the NDM community. I'm, I'm wondering if uh, if you're obviously seeing some uh, mutual uh, agreement uh, within the two communities, but are there sort of gaps maybe that you see on the resiliency side or even on the NDM side that you think the other sort of uh, fits in nicely? Well, I don't know that I would say that there are, there are gaps, but I would say they, there are commonalities. And um, in fact, I think our two communities explored where some of our tools overlapped and how they fit together. Um, uh, there was a, a paper uh, published, I believe, by Gary Klein and Sudeep Hegde on that topic. But um, I think cognitive task analysis probably spans both communities. So um, I guess I guess that's what I would offer with that. And, and I think that would be part of the plan um, when we bring the NDM community in is to, co- to use cognitive task analysis to better understand those critical cues and weak signals that our more experienced workers notice and, that they use to inform their decision making. But where the NDM community comes in, as far as I can see, is how to actually turn that into decision-making tools and training. Right. So, so both communities are, are good at understanding the issues, but um, NDM seems to have uh, the toolkit, if you will, to turn those understandings into, into real learning experiences for people. Very well said, Brian. So uh, we got a couple more uh, questions that are uh, kind of fun. But uh, the first is just to um, y- y- you've talked about uh, everything from 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 moon suits uh, to uh, <laughs> to to tree trimming, uh, and so obviously you've got kind of a diverse uh, experience. I wondered if you could tell us one thing uh, about you that the audience maybe doesn't know. Well, I am an avid traveler. <laughs> I've been to probably 30 or 40 different countries, um, including many in Asia. I used to, uh, used to work in China, so I spent quite a bit of time in Asia uh, early in my career. And as part of that travel, I love photography, so I'm also a photographer. Well, maybe this that leads into the next question, uh, or maybe maybe you've already answered that next question. But the, the next one is, if you could instantly achieve expertise in anything, what would it be? You know, I love that question, and I so my my um, my initial response is Spanish because mm-hmm. I would love to learn to speak Spanish. So if I could learn it instantly. That would be incredible. And, and actually, I'd love to be fluent in another language, but Spanish would be really helpful with the work that I currently do. Right. Well, I think there's a few vendors out there who would, who would claim that they can do that for you. So um, it'd be interesting to see you try those out. I need to meet them then. <laughs> well, Beth, thanks for speaking with us today. It has been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to be here. And on that note, thank you for joining us. For the NDM Podcast, I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.
Thank you.